As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me today one of my parenting inspirations, Erin Claybo. 
Aaron is the author of Second Nature, which I was sent because we share a publisher, but I actually read it because of its tie-in with the yoga that I practice, Katona Yoga, where we create uh, new habits, new synapses, new patterns in the body to take ourselves from being first nature to second nature, these new patterns from being first nature to second nature, where they just become a part of us. And with regards to parenting, Erin happens to be the mother of four. She's a PhD. She's a professor who teaches both biology and neuroscience. She writes for the popular media. Her scientific research on brain function and development has resulted in many peer-reviewed journal articles, which is in this day and age, quite impressive and also weirdly important. Um, I want to start by, first of all, welcome, Erin. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Elena, so much for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to uh, to join forces with you for a, a few minutes here. Define creativity first. Um, I'm on page eight of Second Nature. I always like to tell my listener what page I'm on in the book so that they can follow along with me. This book is dog-eared and underlined and notated in the margins within an inch of its life. It's been with me for several years as I have endeavored successfully, I believe, to overcome my own patterns of volatility, temper, even rage at times. And that was something that was unwittingly and really unintentionally handed down to me from from many generations. And I decided that I was going to be the one to evolve it once and for all. And it took me many years. And your book, along with Nonviolent Communication and another book called Backtalk, really old school, um, another book by Kim John Payne called The Soul of Discipline for the parents who are listening. Those were kind of my four Bibles. This one is one of them. On page eight, you say that different definitions lead to differences in how we talk about creativity and how much we value it, ultimately leading to either prioritizing or marginalizing creativity in our lives. I think this, when I read this, I was hooked to this book and I didn't put it down until it was done. Erin, talk to us about what inspired you to go after this, this very um, concept in your own work. And then we're just going to like plow through. I have like 11 questions for you. <laughs> sure. So creativity, I think, is extremely undervalued in our society. And at the same time, um, we keep pointing to it as what's most important. And there's this dichotomy there that really doesn't make sense. Right. And I think that I didn't really notice that this was the case until I started raising children. And when I looked at their schooling and the kind of cre creativity, and I'm quoting with air quotes here, air that quotes, they were getting, yeah, they were getting in school was um, drawing or music, these really structured classes that fell firmly in the arts range. And as a scientist, I have found that creativity is completely essential in science, even if I'm not painting or, or playing music. And also what I realized is that it is so essential to be able to be creative, to be successful in life and to be able to solve problems and to solve empathetic puzzles, trying to figure out how you can have your needs met and also not impinge on the rights or feelings of somebody else in a negative way. And so I did a deep dive into creativity because I realized that it was actually a functional, healthy sense of creativity is underlying so many other things that we don't think about as creative processes, like empathy, like self-control, like problem solving, grit, resilience, all these things that we want for our kids and that we want for ourselves. And when I did this deep dive into the literature of creativity, it came, became really apparent that there are two basic ideas about creativity and they tend to have their roots in kind of the Eastern cultures or the more Western ideas where the Eastern is kind of a sense of kind of self and your own personal truth. And that creativity then is, is truth. 
And that was really interesting to me because I think the Western perspective was what I was more raised with, where creativity is just novel utility, like being able to do something differently. But if you can just do it differently, it's really not that helpful to society. And so you have to do it differently in a way that is useful. On page seven, you say that Western creativity is defined by the presence of two components, originality and effectiveness. <laughs> yeah, isn't that exhausting to just think about that? <laughs> it's exhausting. I'm exhausted. America, it seems, wants to know your ideas and what you can do with your ideas. You italicize and and do. But in the Eastern definition of creativity, you say, on the other hand, describes a sense of self-fulfillment or self-realization. Again, my listener, this is on page seven. And she, well, she really had me hooked right here. But it involves an awareness of the truth about yourself or an event or an object. It's more about finding a new point of view rather than breaking from tradition. It's not about rebellion. It's about something that's exclusively, deliciously yours. Right. But you can see when you're describing these two things that one is completely self-centered oh, yeah. and the other oh, yeah. is completely others-centered. And I think the truth in that lies in the way that we combine those together to make something that is both true for ourselves and also something you can share with other people. So we really need to integrate in this way, in a way that our society doesn't encourage us doing. And also that we are prioritizing creativity in our lives in all these ways. And to segue into what you were just mentioning, which I think is kind of the bedrock of this interview, and it's just on page nine, creativity is the foundation for empathy and self-control. Many, many times in Jonah's life, I know I screwed up. I know I did. I mean, all parents know that they have done so. But I also know as I read this book again, it's been a couple of years since it was handed to me and I implemented like literally everything or reaffirmed what you are teaching from what I had been doing. I know that I did a great job in actively engaging Jonah's empathy with other people in really tough moments, with me, with himself, with James, his stepfather, with his own father, so many other people in his life. I know that I did that right. But I want to explore this with you for my listener, because when, as you say on page nine, imagination seeps over into empathy, as we can actively imagine what others must be feeling or experiencing, this empathy often happens during the creative process. So they're so linked, you say, that it can be hard to tease them apart, but it's easy to tap into both simultaneously. And I think if we can get this across to our kids, we will have a much better world. Creativity, you go on to say, is equally important for self-control, since it's much easier to have good self-control if you can generate more solutions to a problem. I really can't thank you enough. So much of this has gone into my work with Jonah. That's wonderful to hear. And for me as well, with my own children, I found that these are skills that I need to work on in myself before I can really actively cultivate them sometimes in my children. So even just the perspective taking, taking a minute to use your imagination about where your child is, where your child's coming from, the big things that are like a big deal to your child that day, they're not going to be the same things as, as what you're dealing with. And so just That's taking right. that minute in the very beginning of in, any kind of interaction or conflict resolution with my kids, I always try to check in and do that because it makes me more empathetic to just do that quick perspective taking exercise at the beginning. Yeah. Just to, just to dive in, I, I think um, when I sit with him and I really think about, okay, this is his experience. If I even sit and be with him for one minute of a day now, when you think about where your kid is or what they must be thinking or feeling, it gives me so much insight so quickly. Right. And doing it every day, I think, is, is really important because yeah. it's so quick. It doesn't take 10 minutes even. It takes one minute. It may take, you know, five the first time you do it to really think through. But every time you get it, you get better at it. 
And then Mm -hmm. it's very easy to click in because you're more connected. And so Mm -hmm. I do try, so I have four children and, and I try to every day at least spend a quick 30 seconds checking into how would it be if that was my day that they had today and I was 10 or I was eight, kind of settle me in a little bit and just give that moment to them so that I can be a better parent. And it's harder, I think, when they're when you're parenting kids who are at different places. And I think that that little moment right there becomes even more important, especially when you're dealing with a range of ages. I agree with that. And I think that even just in listening to you tapping into each one of your four kids, bless your heart, I only have one, hearing your empathy for them, I can hear how level-headed you probably mostly are with them and how teaching them to sort of navigate social situations from there is a really stabilizing practice. You go into the benefits of empathy starting on page 10. I I mean, I have literally folded almost every other page. Benefits of empathy. It makes kids safer. Empathy gives your child a superpower, the ability to predict someone's behavior. Like, really listen to that for a second. All of us are psychic. None of us are special in this. The question is, how quiet can we get so that we can hear what somebody else might actually be experiencing? And by hear, I put that in air quotes, like hear, feel, see, touch, taste. Empathy turns kids into leaders. Empathy-enriched children often turn out to be leaders since they're more socially competent. Why? They have an enhanced ability to manage other people's perspectives and expectations, which is a skill get this, that transcends age. Leaders on the playground become company leaders where empathy can increase employee motivation, job commitment, productivity. Dude, I was sitting at dinner with James and my kid last night and the kid took over the menu ordering. (laughs) I mean, full on. Took over. He's 14. He totally took over after finding out what everybody wanted and managed the whole interaction. Um, with our waiter who we love, whom we love. And we had just gotten finished talking, like having some sort of empathy discussion when that happened. And I recalled this page, we're on page 11 now. I'm going to go through the last few benefits of empathy so that my listener can really wrap her or his head around this. It makes kids happy. As an added reward for good behavior, benevolent acts make us feel good inside. Hey. We know this. The science has been here for quite a number of years now. Giving gifts to another person makes us feel happier than giving gifts to ourselves. Empathy makes us feel rich. Rich in every way, not just financially, but when we give money away, our sense of abundance of wealth increases. Anyone who's donated money knows that. When we act in empathetic ways, our sense of time expands. And it's actually, you say, the perception of having things like time and money that matters more than the actual measured amount. And that enriched perception makes us happier. Empathy is healthy for us. Empathetic adults have healthier, more satisfying relationships, are more likely to stay married. They heal more quickly after a surgery or an injury. It goes on, compassion. And I say thank you again for this because to have these very clear definitions has helped all of us in my house to then embrace Judith Lassiter's book, What We Say Matters, to embrace the idea of self-empathy as a biological quality. You talk about this on page 13. Computers can't do compassion. It involves great communication. It involves cooperation, collaboration, often personal sacrifice to solve someone else's deal, encouragement. You define empathy on page 13 as well. I would love to hear from you how you how you define empathy and what you, like just one or two teachings that you give to your kids when things are tough uh, for my listener to, to really understand. Empathy is a hard thing to define. And I think that it was much more complicated than I thought heading into this. So I'm a basic neuroscientist and I 
work with neurons and dishes and proteins that are in the neurons that turn on and off. And when I first started this journey about empathy, I think I was coming from the perspective that empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. That's kind of where I was coming from. But what I found when I looked in the literature is it is so much more intricate and beautiful than that. Um, there's so much opportunity there for self-growth in so many different ways. And it turns out that there's really three different forms of empathy. There's empathy, like putting yourself in someone else's shoes. So thinking about just cognitively, no emotion at all, just thinking, what is this person's perspective? Where are they coming from? What is their agenda? What might they be thinking right now? What behavior might they do? Can I predict it? Then there is also emotional empathy. And this is when you feel something. And so if somebody is having a really hard time, let's say they lost a loved one and they're sad, you actually also feel sad. So you have an emotional reaction to someone else's situation. That's emotional empathy. And then there's a third one, which is compassion. This is active empathy. It is doing things about the way you feel or the way you think about somebody else's situation. And I didn't realize that there were all these avenues or pathways to get to compassion. So the, the research says that to get to compassion, you can either go through the cognitive thinking pathway and then act compassionately, or you can go through the emotional pathway and then act compassionately, or you can go through both. So you can feel bad and then think about what is happening and then act on it. And it seems that for my own kids, at least as a parent, it might be because I have a science background, I don't know, but the cognitive idea was easier for me to understand, put in a framework and then teach my children. Like a stepwise, you know, how do you think they might be feeling? Tell me, you know, how they might be um, reacting. This kinds of, these kinds of things were easy to put in a framework. And they're also, there's a lot of research that it's easy to teach. Right. So it's just practice. It's just going through this cognitive process. The emotional ones have been harder for me. And I think that's because growing up, I wasn't really given a lot of emotional framework for which to hang my own emotions on. And so this was a growth process for me as a person to be able to really understand emotional empathy and to tap into it, to understand that you can actually have so much emotional empathy that it can freeze you. And in that case, you know, that's not really going to help you solve problems and help other people and actively be compassionate. So sometimes even having to calm yourself down um, if you have the too many emotions. And so I feel like I was heartened that empathy could be taught because when I went into that, I didn't know that you could teach it. I thought that you kind of were just born with an empathetic child or you weren't. And I had no idea the great power that parents have of just putting these little tiny droplets of water into like an empathy bucket. And over time, the child becomes really em empathetic and competent at empathy and understanding emotions and talking about emotions and feelings and thoughts. And even in situations where they are being, let's say, bullied or they're in a conflict situation, they can resolve that conflict better because they have these tools and they can really have more space to allow somebody else to honor someone else's experience rather than their own, which is so important, especially in our climate that we've had in the last six mm -hmm. months, a year, um, 2020. Just, there's so many reasons to reach out to others in a way that's outside your own perspective. It's funny, I'm looking at page 24 now and looking at the neuronal pathways branching and finding their way into new places. And that's exactly what you experienced as an adult with regards to growing your own empathy, evolving whatever it was that your familial patterns happened to be. Um, you go on in this book to bring us through the stages of brain development. 
this was really helpful to me. Even if you're not particularly a geek like I am, you'll find that this is really interesting because there are certain ages, for example, conception, gestation, into birth, where neuron birth happens, migration happens, some synaptogenesis happens. And starting from birth, all the way into adolescence, myelination happens. Myelin, M-Y-E-L-I-N, myelination is, help me here, where the synapses are actually insulated through information that comes in and gets sort of patterned into the behavior. Am I, am I in the right place here? Yeah, so the, the synaptogenesis that happens starting before birth and going all the way up in a big way until the beginning of adolescence is this really dynamic period where the neurons connect together if they're being used strongly. And if they're not being used, if those pathways are just kind of sitting there unused, then our body gets rid of the synapses. There's no reason to have those connections there. Like our brain wants to be a streamlined, efficient machine. And then the myelination, what that is, is when you have a neuron that reaches out to another neuron, the axon is that kind of long projection to get to the other neuron's connection point. And it can be myelinated. And the myelination is, it's really like an insulation that happens. And that insulation, just like you'd insulate a wire, makes things move faster because you don't lose the electrical signal along the way. It doesn't degrade. And that's really helpful because you can then send faster signals and that pathway can work more efficiently. And it's interesting that myelination, this process of speeding up how quickly the neurons can talk to one another, is something that really keeps developing until your third, fourth decade of life. And also interestingly, the last places that undergo this brain development are in areas like the prefrontal cortex that have gotten a lot of attention for being the seat of kind of attention and personality and judgment and rational, what we think of as mature behavior, especially in college students, this is still developing and ongoing. And when, I don't know why I have this idea in my head that myelination is some sort of insulating situation. Is there a reason for that? I feel like I've learned that somewhere. It is. It does insulate. It actually is another cell type that's a supporting brain cell type that comes and it actually wraps physically around the axon of the neuron. And it it's a fatty substance that's in that. And so that really just insulates that electrical signal as it goes down. So it doesn't degrade over time. Like normal electricity would degrade over time and just dissipate eventually. But we have this really cool system of the myelination that makes that not happen. Okay. We're moving into page 36, using brain plasticity to parent better. We know that to keep our kids healthy, we need to feed them right and encourage them to exercise. It's the same with the experiences our kids practice. We should select experiences for them as carefully as we choose foods for them to eat. Now, I think this is important to note that I'm somehow looking at my kid when he was like, I don't know, from birth till about seven, eight, this selection of experiences, it still obviously happens. He's 14 now and I have to, you know, sort of help guide him, of course. But at those, from zero to seven, I think this was really, really important. And I had at my, as my sort of partner in crime, I had a woman by the name of Anna Walco, who is now a teacher. And she was Jonah's caregiver along with me for all of that time, his whole life. I mean, we didn't, we never left each other's side until we left New York. And Anna gave him so many experiences that gave him a fullness of understanding of what it means to be of the world. I mean, in the world, but not necessarily of the world she helped to activate all these circuits that, you know, creativity and vision and travel. And she would take him to all these really cool places wherever we were. And she strengthened all of these connections in this kid 
so that he is, I can see it. I'm in rereading your book. I can see it now so clearly. He's more adventurous. He's like I said before, like a bit of a leader. There are so many wonderful things that I see in him because of the experiences to which she exposed him when I wasn't around. And of course the experiences to which I exposed him when I was and his dad when he was. But I love that the deliberate practice of thinking about what aspects of life and creativity and experience your kid's brain is, uh, is undergoing, thinking about that as a practice of yours as a parent, I think is something so extraordinary because it turns parenting from a task or a burden at times into a complete privilege where you get to help a human use and develop neuronal connections that can make them a better person. How cool is that? It's amazing. I mean, you really are a, a curator of their experience for at least the first five, six years. And then they go into the school system and they're exposed to a lot of other different things. But the idea of experience of, as being part of a, a toolkit for life is something that happens whether you curate it or not. So yeah. every minute of every day, their their brains are forming some connections and other ones are weakening. And so you have more control over what that looks like in the first um, couple years than you will as, as they age. But also in a really lovely way, that's when those experiences will make the most difference because the synapses are changing so dramatically in the first mm. five, seven years. Um, you know, up until they hit adolescence, they're, we're born with way more synapses than we need. All of our neurons are connecting together for the most part. Right. And then what happens is if they make a functional connection and you use it, it stays. And experience can be something that makes that connection stay. And if you don't use it, then it gets pruned away. And so we prune more than half of the synapses that we originally have because we don't need them. It's such a profound, vast thought. Like, oh, he plays the piano. He could have also done this. He could have, you know, like, oh, what did I miss? If my listener is listening to this going, shit, it's too late. It's actually never too late with a kid no, because not. I'm finding it's now, never too I'm, late. It's never too late. As at 14, I'm finding now that I'm having more depth in our communication and more clarity in our communication than ever before. But just because I'm owning my stuff and I'm making second nature, the skills that I think are more crucial for him. So he's watching that. And I see that even now things that I'm doing now are changing him and making him, uh, you know, more, what do I want to say? More compassionate. But the key is practice, as you say. The key exactly. Is exactly. And a conversation is an experience. And yes. you as a parent will look at your child and you will see, hey, he needs some bolstering in these particular ways, or we've never had a conversation about this particular thing. And at 14, that might be a social situation, or that might be something that's going on in the world that you thought was over his head. And now you realize he's probably old enough to have that conversation. Right. And so that can happen in you know a three minute conversation. You just need to plant a seed. And then he'll run with that. Yeah. He's not going to never think about that three minute conversation again, right? He's going to think about that over the course of a week, whether you're there or not, you're kind of just setting it in motion. Hmm. There have been times recently where I'll say something and I'll purposely not say another word, just <laughs> let it be there instead of, you know, trying to drive my home, my point home five different ways. That presumption of his comprehension uh, leads to his confidence. And I feel that very strongly. Well, and sometimes if things are complicated, that space is really essential for things to settle down. Um, mm. And it presupposes that your child is comfortable talking to you too. Because, you know, with teenagers, some weeks I find that they're much more willing to talk to me than other weeks. <laughs> true. No, it's true. I, and I, I just have to 
All right. So if, if you're listening to this and you have a teenager, I know that you know this already, but just remember, nothing is personal. Nothing. And the more space I think we can give, I find, the better the relation. For the parents of really little kids, one thing that I know I did well was I gave Jonah choices all the time. Do you want to wear the blue shoes or the brown shoes? Do you want to wear the white shirt or the black shirt? I didn't, I, I just constantly gave him choices. So he was always at some sort of executive level in our house, determining the path of his life. Even when he was three, four, five, six. I know Anna did this too. That sort of choice that you give to a kid, and, and by the way, not four choices, not three choices, two choices. Listener, you with me? Those small ways, you point this out, I think it's on page 48. Let me just see one sec. Yeah, page 48. Once we become aware of how our children's daily activities are designed without opportunity for choice, we can work to modify them in small ways to allow true decision autonomy. I really appreciated that sort of affirmation because I know, I know that those choices made him more confident as he grew. Yeah, the choices are so important. That's so wonderful that you do that. And I think you definitely, it's great to start when they're little and to do two choices. It allows them to have some power and autonomy over their own life. And there's so much research that says that if we as individuals have power or control or ownership, then we're going to literally own the outcome of those events. It, we're not going to feel like our life was something that was thrust upon us but instead we'll take responsibility for our own lives. Yeah. And then as your child grows, instead of two choices, you could have three, or you can say, sure. I don't care what you wear, but it has to be clean, right? So right. we're kind of going through. <laughs> and then, you know, what you don't want to do is never give them any, any choices at all. And then they start to go to college. And then you find you're in a situation where you have to say, you can have college A or college B. Like, by that time, you want them to be able to really explore in a much more adult way their life choices. Because if you give them a choice of college A or college B and they go to college B, you're going to be the one to blame when college B didn't go great because A and B were both bad choices and you put me in a bad situation and now I failed out, right? So we need to make sure that we're making all along the way room for them to be the agents of their own life and their and to be able to really own their goods and own their bads, own their successes right. and own their failures. Right. Uh, parental scaffolding. We're on page 58 now, my listener. This is really crucial, key to changing how a child thinks about a situation and what the child sees uh, in any given scenario. I really appreciated this. I know that my mother did a great job with this with me. Um, in most cases, she would sort of point out, hey, um, just notice over there, that thing that we're looking at right now. Check that out and see what you feel about that. Look at that. I, she would point to nature even. She would point to certain people, like see how they're feeling. Um, that sort of practice, I think, where you, you call it verbally scaffolding things for a child by talking through an event while it's happening, elaborating on their recounting of the event after the fact works really well for traumatic situations. You actually referenced where you were talking with your kids about the Nazi demonstrations in Charlottesville in 2017. Near you, I used it with Jonah when he was reading Anne Frank, speaking of the Nazis. And in all kinds of situations, actually, I've used that not knowing that that's sort of what it was. But the point for my listener, and I'd love to hear from you on this, the point is, how can we as parents provide a context, an appropriate context for a kid to have a framework to deal with a situation independently, appropriately, in a timely fashion, efficiently, clearly. And this is like critical for me. I putting this into words, you give such a gift to the world 5859. 
uh, and we're going into 60, into 61 even. Talk to us about how you even came up with this word, Erin, and what, what it meant to you when you first started to use it with your kids. Um, sure. So I think that the scaffolding idea actually comes from a basic neuroscience concept where there are these giant proteins in the cell that act as scaffolds. And so all these other proteins that do things in the cells will come and rest on them and kind of hang out on them. And it provides a framework for all these other systems that happen inside a regular neuron. And it kind of came to a head with one of my daughters in elementary school with kind of a frenemy situation that was ongoing for several years at her school. Oh. Um, and she was quite sensitive in terms of really emotionally feeling these situations, but because it was a friend, it became really complicated to understand why she was also feeling really negatively about these interactions. So it is conflict, but it's not overt conflict where you can point to someone and say, they're a perpetrator and you are a victim. It's, it becomes much more nuanced. And so we started doing this kind of verbal scaffolding when she was experiencing this because it was important to dissect individual events as they happened. Because if you didn't do that, the general sense of everything is that, hey, well, that's my friend. Like, you, you're not going to characterize your friend as a bully. It's really kind of easier to do that in black and white if you see somebody beating somebody up in like a high school locker room or something. But when you're right. in third grade and you just have a friend who's ridiculing like the skirt that you wore that day or something, but then also asking you to play, you know, this for me was helpful because this stuff doesn't go away. So there will be that person in your work when you grow up and have a job in a corporation. For sure. For you sure. still does this stuff and you still feel conflicted and you're not quite sure why you're still friends with them or if you have to work with them every day, how you effectively do that without shutting off that part of you that really is legitimately responding to feeling small or being made to feel small. And so we have a system that we kind of created here. The acronym was STAFF and it was SAY and, and a tell and an ask and then find someone else. So the the general gist of it is that you want to say, you know, how you feel about what's happening in the situation. You wanna tell them that it's not okay. And you wanna ask for what you want to have happen. So what I've noticed about this is it allows for you to really clearly identify the exact reason that you're not feeling welcome or you're not feeling good or safe and it allows also for you to decide, problem solve with creativity, ask for what you want means what could make it better. So sometimes if you just say, I don't like that, that hurts my feelings. The other person doesn't really, like, what are you asking for? Do you want an apology? Because apologies don't really make a difference most of the time without some kind of a change in behavior. So advocating for yourself in this process, you know, hey, that's not okay. That makes me feel bad could you do this instead is something that I totally stole from this elementary friend, friend of me situation. And I, I use it in my daily life with talking to teachers or talking to um, other people like neighbors. If there's a conflict, friends that have a misunderstanding and it's really improved my relationships with others as well. Super similar to nonviolent communication, observations, feelings, needs, requests. Yes, very similar. Super cool. I am just looking at the benefits of scaffolding. Scaffolded practice, it helps kids boost skills that aren't super strong. It helps them deal with very small things. And it helps them to change bad habits. These are things that we need as adults. You know, I wish I would have known a lot of this stuff when I was in my 20s and 30s because it would have saved me from many years of struggling with addiction. So you said that your mom did a really good job of having you notice things around you and changing the focus did, yeah. Yeah. in situations. 
And I feel like what my mom did well was to tell me kind of what to expect. So when, you know, the night before she might say, tomorrow we're doing this, this, and I'm going to be leaving you with the babysitter or whatever. But what, what I never got is this hindsight discussion. And the, the scaffolding is a lot about that. You take an event that happened, um, whether it was a conflict with someone else or something that your child observed and you want to know kind of where they're at, and you go through it in this way um, as kind of a processing tool to allow them to release things that maybe they're feeling are really giant and that's all they can think about. And also give them another perspective of what do you think that person thought about it? You know, how could they have acted differently? What would you have done if they had just taken that toy from you instead of, you know, like kind of walk through the what ifs. And that in itself is an absolute exercise every time you do it in empathy and in self-control when you're talking about kind of what you do differently the next time. And then in creativity as well, all of that together in that one conversation of scaffolding. Yeah. I'm skipping ahead because I'm just realizing where we are in terms of time. Conflict resolution tools, page 141. Teach your child to communicate very clearly. This communication, conflict resolution tool number one, especially in the face of bullying behavior. How do you communicate very, very clearly? Talk to us a little bit about that. I think this is the same sorts of things that we were talking about earlier where I think a lot of uh, our generation didn't get conflict resolution tools. Not at all. And so it's really hard to communicate effectively if you don't know what you want either. Mm. And so this is part this of knowing self. Yeah, it's part of knowing self and knowing what is okay and not okay for you. Okay. And if you're in a situation that is outside the bounds of okay for you, to be able to understand that it's okay for you to have a situation that's not okay for yourself. Like you don't have to just be okay with whatever happens. And if it falls into that category where you're saying, nope, not okay for me, then you have to do something with that. So that's a burden in itself, right? If you reject the suitability of something for yourself, then you're left with telling the other person in some ways that's not for you. And there's lots of different ways to do this. The easiest way to do it is just to bail on the situation. But I don't know that that's the healthiest way to do it. And it's not always possible to do that. So staff comes in. Yeah. Say how you feel. Tell them that what they're doing is not okay and ask for what you want to have happen. Right. And for adults, you know, this is a really easy thing to do via email or text. If you have problems, you know, initially when you start doing it to have those conversations, like if, if having that conversation the thought of it makes your heart beat faster. There are ways to do this while you get used to advocating for yourself that are more measured and allow you to really think out what you want to say ahead of time. But this has kind of evolved for me as an adult into a mantra that is be clear and be kind. And it's been very helpful for me in the last two years or so. It's helpful for me right this second. Conflict resolution number two, make sure your child knows where to go for help. Find a grown-up is a last resort, but it's still important. We want to raise a generation of kids whose first impulse is to, we don't want to raise, sorry, we don't want to raise a generation of kids whose first impulse is to just go get the teacher. We want to raise a kid who can be creative in solving problems. And that goes to conflict resolution tool number three, practice creative problem solving. That's so cool to do that in your house. You can even do sort of role playing. I've done that with Jonah many, many times uh, over the course of his life with regards to, okay, what if this happens and what if that happens? And we've done role playing and he like, he really appreciated that. You know, he was ready and, and had to put things into practice only a couple of times. I think it's one of the funnest parts about parenting, honestly. I, yes, I really yes. like the role playing. And it also is such a good tool when you have an only child because yes. you can't see a lot of this conflict happening. There's not a sibling rivalry maybe happening where you mm. can hear it and see it and kind of force them both to talk through it when you're only in charge of one half of the conflict, such as with an only child having a conflict with a friend or something like that. It's really important to have the ability to role play and even do silly kinds of role plays that are really kind of over the top 
Um, you know, you know, I have a daughter who didn't want to say no to anyone. She always wanted to please them. And we would be just ridiculous about it just to get her to practice saying no. We'd say, you know, hey, I work at Dairy Queen and I am tired and don't want to clean off my tables. I'm just going to sit here. Would you go clean off my tables for me? Like ridiculous things just to be able to put her in a position where she'd say, you know what? That's not appropriate. That's your job. And so I'm going to say no. But really, she probably want to help the person out. That's a really beautiful uh, example, actually, because I think a lot of a lot of adults, perhaps even my listener right now listening to this is, you know, we're doing a lot of pleasing of other people, particularly in the realm of social media and those sorts of public spaces virtually. And we don't need to do that. Saying no is actually a really good thing. And it's good, I think, to set boundaries and to have children understand that boundaries are really good things to have, that you shouldn't always try to, I mean, that's their bubble and it's your bubble and you should be able to tell where the delineation is between self and other. And then responsibility, roles and responsibilities become a very big conversation to have. On page 143, conflict resolution tool number four, foster compassion for the bully. On this day, two days after the 2020 election, when we still don't know who actually won, this has never been more relevant. Uh, You take us into a whole section on frenemies, which is really appreciated. I already know a few of my listeners who will benefit greatly from reading that as well. So thank you for that. The neuroscience of self-control is where we go next. We're on page 151 now. You give us, an, well, I can't go into this now just because of time constraints. We, we have really cool self-control tests that we can run by a kid really simply and yourself as well. Uh, questions like, I do things without giving them enough thought. One to five, five, you totally agree with this and one you don't. You know, it's, it's really interesting to think about that. I say the first thing that comes into my mind without thinking enough about it. Uh, I stop and think things through before I act. It's nice to have this sort of a book because you can use it with your parenting and, or you can use it even with your friends and just go through, like, get to know yourself a little bit better. Do it at the end of dinner. Sometimes we do these fun little prompts at the end of dinner and it always keeps Jonah with us a little bit longer (laughs) for him to just reflect on himself a little bit, which is really nice. Um, Yeah. I think it's great too, to look at how you rate maybe your son and how he rates himself and see if that matches or not, because that helps with self-awareness. I'm going to do that tonight, actually, now that he's older. Um, You go into self-regulation tools, training programs, uh, mindfulness, reflection, and I really appreciate on page 182, how do we make self-regulation second nature? feels like the apex of the book, really. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, and you're listening to this, please look at page 182 of this book when you get a moment, because it breaks it down so easily to present neuroscience for everyone in a way that is really understandable, digestible, and accessible. Um, You go on into internal and external motivation, And finally, the last page that I have folded is page 190. Take advantage of childhood neuroplasticity. I want to ask you about this. I'm really, really curious. An addiction researcher, you write, page 190, offered his daughter $1,000 to not try any drugs until she was 21 years old. I'm like seriously considering this, but (laughs) more money. Notice he didn't say never to try drugs. He knows that during brain development, circuits are very susceptible to being rewired based on activation, especially, oh, this is so chilling, dopamine reward pathways. Your children could wait until they go to college to work on self-regulation, but it will be much harder for them to learn it then. They will always default to the pathways that were activated while their brains were actively forming. These are strong connections reinforced by years of use, making these neurons more likely to fire. Okay, so, okay. As a former addict, and my drug of choice was marijuana, and 
some listener is probably sitting here thinking, well, marijuana is not addictive. And guess what it was for me? As a former addict, I am thinking that this is a really cool idea because I want to protect all these little neuronal pathways. I know too many kids in their 20s and 30s who started smoking weed or doing other things when they were really young and they are in weird funks and depressions all the time, several times a year even. And I, I can't help but think, is it early drug use that brought this about? Part of my research is um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder research. And so I've done a lot of work on the impact of even one kind of binge drink in animal models in the, like the third trimester model of human gestation. And I've found in my lab that one binge drinking session in the mice was able to actually have memory, learning and memory deficits in the adult mice. It's statistically different on learning a maze, a spatial maze. Wow. And that, that blew my mind because I had no idea that one basically equivalent of a binge drink could have that long lasting effect. And what we found is that the, the animals were able to learn the maze just fine when they were adolescents, but then we tested them again in adulthood and they were statistically worse at remembering the maze in adults. Because when they were in the womb, the mother had been in, had ingested alcohol. Yes. So we did just one really big, yeah, one binge drinking session in a model that is a replica of a third trimester human model. Wow. And when I look at data like that, when I talk to my son, so I have two teenagers now, when I talk to my kids about alcohol, what my persistent thing that I say to them is, please wait until your brain has been more developed because what we know is that alcohol or any other drug um, will affect whatever is developing at the time of consumption. And then the effect on that will be more dramatic if the dosage is higher. That's just kind of toxicology and how it works on the, on the central nervous system. And based on what we said earlier in this conversation, we know that synaptogenesis is still going on in a really big way up through mm -hmm. adolescence. And we also know that myelination is still happening into the th third decade of life. And so for my conversations with my kids, I say delay, 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 because that same thing will happen. So if, if you start drinking earlier, research shows that the earlier you start, the more likely you are to become an alcoholic. And that paper, when I, when I found this, my mom, and she had ended up kind of going through the book for me, reading it before it got published. And she said, you know, I really think there is a mistake here. You need to need to take this out. This isn't right. And I was like, let me send you the paper. So this is something oh, that is not that bad. well known. She well, felt bad. She probably drank when you were in there. No, I think that she had, she has alcoholism that ran in her family. Oh, and so God. she, with her parents, didn't really understand the link between how early the first drink is and the likelihood of becoming an alcoholic. So completely different than I see, I see. drinking in the, when you're pregnant, but just the idea that a 13 year old drinking versus a 20 year old drinking that it makes a big difference in their life outcome, statistically speaking. Um, wow. That was a new concept for her. So much so that she thought, well, she said, you know, she's a counselor. She said, we weren't taught this when I was in school. And so I don't think that it's right. But remember, you know, research is always changing. And we're always learning new things. Oh, well, also that wasn't being looked at then. That wasn't right. being looked at. They were also smoking cigarettes. My mother had a cigarette in the delivery room with me. Yeah, they, I mean, we just didn't know, but now we absolutely know, and we know that there's really no safe period for any kind of drug, or I mean, alcohol is really a toxin here, that the, the toxin will, will impact that central nervous system when we're developing. I appreciate the, the use of the word toxin. I just want to say one more time to my listener, alcohol, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, is a toxin, a neurotoxin particularly 
to teenagers. Absolutely. And it's interesting in that it is different than other kind of drugs that are, are in use because alcohol really has no medicinal purposes at all. Like, unless you're talking about that it can disinfect things when you have to go into surgery, you can use, use them right. to disinfect the scalpels. Or if you're in the battlefield in the Civil War and you need, you have no anesthesia and you need to uh. knock somebody out. Those are the only situations I can think of when it might be considered a drug of any sort. But really, it is a toxin, whereas other things are drugs that we use to treat conditions, painkilling, things like this, where we kind of use them in a recreational way. So I do think it is in a different category. Totally. Wow. I am. Um, I'm so full of gratitude for the moment this was handed to me several years ago to now. I think it was two, two or three years ago that this was given to me. I read through it and now I'm, you know, obviously going over it again to talk to you. I want to close with page 197, using game theory to parent. We talk about this a lot. And for my listener, actually, just one other note, page 196 goes into how to handle homework situations. So don't miss that. Okay. Using game theory to parent, though, it sort of bleeds into this as well. Um, my boyfriend and I talk about game theory a lot, where there's an assumption, and some people have written about it, culture like that of Japan, for example, where the numbers, the COVID numbers are very low. Why is that? They believe in game theory. They sort of, uh, they collaborate. It's sort of competitive, but it's also collaborative. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about this in terms of how to get kids to do things they don't want to do uh, for the betterment of themselves and, of course, in the household. Yeah, so game theory is really a lot of social psychology at work, and it's, it's used a lot in terms of economics um, and principles of predicting behavior. And so if you think about parenting, at its essence is really, if you think about it as a game, it's a cooperative game. It doesn't matter what you say as a parent, if your child doesn't do it, it's not working, right? And so part of good parenting is playing this game effectively so that a child has enough buy-in that they're invested in that relationship and also that you're hands-off enough that they're learning the skills that they need to be a successful adult. So when you're thinking about situations where you and your child are in a conflict, we know that as parents, we have to win. We're not, we're not going to be entering into this joint venture where we're both equal. The parent is the parent and the child is the child. But it makes it a lot easier to parent in a way that is effective if you can kind of have some gives there where your child can feel like they won while you still kind of are driving the whole aspect of the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so this idea of social psychology and understanding, like, there's this idea of the, the dictator game where if a dictator is given $10 and he can give whatever he wants to his teammate and keep the rest, and he ends the game, on average, dictators give 250 to the other person and then end the game. But they don't have to give anything. There's these sense, the sense of fairness and a sense of doing the right thing and of morality. And these things are really complicated for people. But understanding that every time we make a decision as a person, we're weighing kind of morality and we're weighing what we've been taught and we've been, we're weighing our own objectives and our goals. And that this is game theory to look at your child weighing all these things, trying to figure out how to, at the same time, help them make good decisions. And the younger they are, craft in a way that makes the right decision rewarding for them is really, it can be difficult. And you have to really think a lot about it and handle this very deliberately with your approach to it. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. I want to also make sure that my listener knows the conclusion which is titled Parents Shape Future Free Will is Crucial, page 205. And then you have three awesome appendices, common sense neuroanatomy, epigenetics, 
and neuromyths versus neurofacts. This is such a good book. If you are a parent and you don't have this book yet, it's called Second Nature. It has been one of my four Bibles, how parents can use neuroscience to help kids develop empathy, creativity, and self-control. This is an incredible, incredible offering, Erin. I really appreciate it. And you for coming here today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for the conversation. This has been really lovely. Yeah, really lovely. Any plans to write any more books in the near future? Are you doing any courses or anywhere where, where my listener can find you? Well, I've been trying to do a basic neuroanatomy five-minute video series, and so that is on YouTube. Um, so you can just search my name on YouTube. Um, I teach a neural basis of behavior at the University of Virginia, and I basically just did a five minutes for parents specifically. What did we talk about in that neural basis class on that day that can really be taken from a parent's perspective? to understand more about how the brain develops and how all of our senses develop and how motivation works and what gender kind of is as a construct with hormones. So that, that I think will be helpful. Got it. And your YouTube channel is just under your name? It is. And then I have a website as well, which is Aaron Clabo PhD and on Instagram and on Facebook. So same Aaron Clabo PhD. Uh huh. Okay, good. I'm going to spell it for my listener. Get ready. E-R-I-N-C-L-A-B as in boy, O-U-G as in George, H as in Harry, and then the letters P-H-D. Okay. That means Erin is a badass who has done her work. <laughs> I I am really grateful, Erin. Thank you again for coming here today. Thank you for all of the impact that you have had on my child. This is a direct transmission. I am so thankful to you. Truly, thank you. Thank you, Elena. Talk soon. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.